Okay, grab your Bibles. Let's go to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. We're getting back into our series in Acts, and it's been uh, a few months now, and I promise you we're going to finish it. We're going to finish it before, uh, right before Christmas. We'll go into our Advent season, then we'll start a fresh uh, series in, in January. But Acts, and for those of you who haven't been here, let me just kind of reor- or orient you very quickly and reorient you if it's been a while and you're kind of what's going on. Um, Acts is uh, written, Luke wrote both the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts. These are sort of companion pieces that tell the story of Christ while he was here and then his apostles after he's gone and how the gospel spread. And what's happening in both of these is, is he's writing to a man by the name of Theophilus. We don't know who this man was, but but, but very likely that Theophilus was some kind of patron for Luke and basically said, Luke, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to commission you to go and do some research for me and then write for me an orderly account of how this happened. What in the world? How is it that this little thing called the Way, this little sect in the north of Galilee with 12 men and their leader has now grown by the time the book of Acts is written into a worldwide phenomenon? And so this is what Luke is recording. And we can answer that question. We can open the, the book of Acts and go, aha, I kind of see how it happened, how it unfolded. But, but really the bigger answer is it happened because they were empowered by the Spirit. They understood they couldn't do this on their own. This is something the Spirit worked in them and allowed the the gospel to spread all around the known world. But it's also because Jesus willed it to happen, right? We know Acts chapter 20, chapter 1, verse 8 is kind of the outline of the book of Acts. He says to his apostles, he says, you heard this, this gathering, he says, look, here's what you do. You stay here in Jerusalem, and I'm going to, uh, my, my spirit's going to be poured out upon you, and when that happens, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea to Samaria to the end of the earth. And this is what happens, right? So the, the, the one who has all authority says this will happen, and so it happens. So by the time you get to Acts chapter 21, there's a guy named Paul in there, and Paul has now gone on three missionary journeys, and the gospel, because of Paul's missionary journeys, has spread throughout the Mediterranean world. Started off in Israel, goes to the north of Israel, heads up to, 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 to Antioch and Syria and there, and then he heads across the Mediterranean and goes to what we know today as modern-day Turkey, modern-day Greece, uh, parts of southern eastern Europe. Uh, this is where it's gone, and by the time it gets to the end of the book of Acts, it will be in Rome, okay? But when we're in Acts chapter 21, Paul is sort of ending his third missionary journey. He's on his way back to Jerusalem, and so let's pick it up in verse 1 of uh, chapter 21 and listen to what happens here. And when uh, we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in the sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days were ended, we departed and we went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. And we had finished the voyage from from Tyre. We arrived at Ptolemais and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with them. 
He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul said, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready, went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing, uh, bringing us to the house of Amnason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Okay, now, uh, so every week, around Monday, I start reading the passage uh, Wednesday is when I sit down to write my sermon, and I got to just be honest with you, I read this this week, and I thought, I have no idea what's happening here, right? I have no idea what the application is. This feels like a travel journal, right? I went here, I went there, well, you know, this awesome place, I went to this awesome place, and you know, I don't, I don't know what the application is. I don't know what I'm supposed to preach to people. Now, now, when that happens and you get to that kind of place of desperation, maybe this happens in your Bible study, right? You're opening your Bible like, I don't know what this is supposed to say to me. And that's actually a good place for you to be because the Bible says, David says in Psalm 119, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things from your law. It tells us that the, the natural man does not perceive the things of the spirit because they're spiritually discerned. All that to say that, that we, don't, we don't understand and read our Bibles with natural eyes. The understanding of scripture is a supernatural thing. God must reveal that to me, to you, as we read our Bible. Now, it's not, it's not just my special providence, right? Somehow I get to do this or I, God reveals it to me because I'm a pastor. No, he'll do this for everybody. He'll help you to understand scripture. But here's some things that happen to me. When I get to that place, I start asking myself questions to try and go, okay, what is happening here? So I'm looking and I'll say things like, um, you know, why, why this particular episode? Like, Luke could have written a bunch of things, but he, he takes a limited amount of ink and a limited amount of paper and says, I'm going to record this. Why? What is up with that? Why here? Why, 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 why is, how does this fit into the overall theme? And then sometimes I'll ask my que the question, is there anything here that is surprising, that's strange, that's kind of odd, unusual? Now, when I ask that question, that's when I think the gold started to emerge, okay? And I thought, okay, yeah, there are some surprising things. There are some strange things. There are some things that sort of set it off from other patches. Let me, let me just give you three things, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drill down into some of these just uh, in a moment here, but, but think about this. First of all, notice the pace of the narrative. Did you catch this? Like it is frenetic. The activity is we sought, we stayed, we slept, we lodged, we boarded, we, we got off, we prayed, we wept. I mean, this is just a passage filled with active verbs. There's, there's activity just going on at this frenetic pace. Number two, notice there's all these moments of fellowship. Like everywhere Paul goes, he seeks out other brothers and sisters in Christ. We might even say in that fellowship, there's some pretty deep emotion. 
They're urging. There's things like don't do this. Or there's, there's, there's these scenes of being, I mean, imagine this being on a beach and kneeling down, praying with other believers. Very emotional scenes that are happening here. But I think the most surprising is what I see as the work of the Spirit in here. Did you notice verse 4? And I'm gonna, we're going to drill down on this in a moment. Verse 4, he sought out the disciples. We stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Go down to verse 11, and you run into this guy, Agabus. He shows up. He takes the belt off of Paul. He binds his own hand and feet and says, the one whose belt this is, right, the, the, the Jews will bind the man like this. And deliver him up to the Gentiles. This is the Spirit speaking through Agabus the prophet. And everybody hears this and says, Paul, don't go. Right? So, so, so the Spirit is doing some unusual things here. Now, before we dive in and kind of figure out what's going on with the pace of this and what the Spirit is doing, I want to retrace Paul's steps a little bit to understand why he's heading back to Jerusalem in the first place. And I think this will be helpful. Why is, we might say this, why is, in Paul, why is Paul such a, in such a hurry? I just got to get back to Jerusalem. Well, if you're in um, chapter 21, just go back two pages or so to chapter 19, verse 21, and, uh, and look at what happens here. So Paul's at Ephesus. Just look at me for a second. He's at Ephesus. He is uh, seeing amazing God. He stays with the Ephesians, by the way, probably more than any other church. God's doing amazing things. In fact, we, we read in verse 20, I think it is right before this, that the word of God prevailed or continued to increase and prevail mightily. I mean, God is moving at Ephesus. And then immediately, verse 21, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Now, what does it mean that Paul said, I resolved in the spirit? What happened there? I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know what happened. I just know Paul says, Luke records, something like there is an urging in his spirit that's telling him, you go to Jerusalem and the ultimate thing's going to happen. You're going to end up in Rome. Okay? Now, go down uh, to chapter 20. And look what happens in verse 15. We get a little more detail here. Sailing from there, came to the following day, kind of gives his travel itinerary. Verse 16, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Okay, now, now what's happening here? Paul, now we know Paul has a date certain in time, right? I want to get there by a certain date. I'm really anxious to make it and be in Jerusalem by the day of the Feast of Pentecost. By the way, if you don't know what that is, the Feast of Pentecost is an Old Testament feast that gets carried over into the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it came 50 days after what's called the Feast of First Fruits. It's a lot of Fs, right? But it's, it's, it's celebrating the harvest that's come. In the, in the New Testament, it comes 50 days. There's, there's a celebration in the early church in, in, institutes that comes 50 days after the ascension. Okay, so, so this Pentecost is this Jewish celebration. They hadn't switched over to kind of Christian calendar yet. It wasn't that. So they're celebrating 50 days after first fruits, and they come and they gather together. So there are people from all over the world. So why does Paul want to go to Jerusalem? 
Paul's a missionary, man. Paul wants more than anything to preach the gospel to people that haven't heard it. So he goes, man, this is an awesome opportunity. This is, could be like, like Acts 2.0, right? This could be this new wave. I could preach to people from all over the world in one fell swoop. They would scatter, and then they would go and be missionaries in their homes. It's a very strategic thing that he wants to do here, probably. Um. Now, go down to uh, chapter 20 and verse 22. Paul's talking. He calls the Ephesian elders to himself. And he says, Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that in every city the Holy Spirit testifies to me uh, that imprison and afflictions await me. So here's Paul being moved by the Holy Spirit to go back. And he's... He calls the elders. There's this, you know, if you go to the end of chapter 20, this heart-wrenching, weeping, crying. I'm never going to see you again, but I'm going to Jerusalem. I'll end up in Rome. And this is what the Holy Spirit is testifying, that there's going to be hardship that awaits me. Okay, so this is, this is why Paul's headed back to Jerusalem. There's an overview of, of where he stops along the way and kind of what's going on. But I, I, I want to I wanna just ask the question, okay, so, so what are kind of the application points for us, right? And let me give you three things. And the first one is simply this. I want you to see the precious nature of Christian fellowship for Paul, right? Notice this. Paul has a date. I got to be back to Jerusalem by this date, Okay. And yet, so there's this, I told you, this frenetic pace, and yet Paul takes time to seek out the fellowship of fellow believers, of brothers and sisters in Christ. He goes to places he'd never visited before, but man, I want to find out, are there any Christians in this city? I want to meet with them. I want to pray for them. I want to encourage them. I want to stay with them. It's all about them. I mean, listen, this is the Apostle Paul. Right? He's been, he's been beaten. He's been uh, uh, stoned. He has been shipwrecked. He has suffered a kind of persecution that most of us will never know, never come close to. Like, would anybody fault him if on the way home, he's like, look, I'm peopled out. Uh, I'm exhausted. I want to stay in my, ho my, my, my hotel room and get a spa. Right? Nobody's going to fault him for going, I, I just want to relax. But he doesn't. He goes after. In fact, you get the sense that Paul actually found joy. That was a soul-filling exercise for Paul, to be around the people of God. This is not a religious duty. Paul is not checking a religious box. He wants fellowship. Do you understand this is what the Spirit of God does to us? He pushes us together. He's, I mean... John's going to say in 1 John, like, like, you know you're part of us if you love one another. Paul loves these people. Paul loves brothers and sisters in Christ that maybe he's never met. See, um, if church for you is just the punching of a religious card each week, I get to do that, I'm going to do that, and okay, I've kind of done my religious obligation. You don't get it. Like, like God wants so much more. Like he's, he's working to bring you to see you that this is soul-filling stuff. This is really good. This is, this is you seeing how much your spiritual family means in your growth and development. 
the precious nature of Christian fellowship. Now listen, I want you to see something else. A part of that precious nature is, we might say, the, the, the power of greetings, the sacred nature of greetings and goodbyes. You see this? Like, do you, do you know this? Do you know what the, that the Bible holds in high esteem? The Bible will almost say this is sacred for us to greet one another. Paul's going to say to the Thessalonians, greet one another with a holy kiss. He's going to say that they're going to, it's going to talk about how, how uh, Christ greeted his disciples. Paul's going to say, man, show, show hospitality to strangers. Make sure they don't feel like outsiders. Do you remember when somebody made you feel welcome to Foothill Church? Somebody made you feel welcome into the family? Somebody made you feel welcome into the body of believers, into Christianity? See, we come to church very often and we take our seat and we're kind of like, if, if I'm going to meet anybody, they're going to have to make the first move. The Christian impulse is I'll make the first move. I'll reach out. I'll love them. I'll help them feel welcome. One thing I love about like Pastor Ike and, and, and Jess, right? You know, you know, like Ike, Ike just loves people. And it's, you know, it's like I just, I just really, I mean, he'll talk like this. Like, I want, will you guys help me with this person? I just want them to feel welcome. God, give us more people that have that kind of impulse. That just like I, I want to make sure nobody feels left out of this. That's a good Christian impulse. That's a sacred thing. But how about goodbyes? Do you know how, how, how much real estate the Bible gives to goodbyes? Like we hear in three different accounts of Jesus saying goodbye to his disciples in various ways. If I go to the Old Testament, Moses saying goodbye, David saying goodbye, Joshua saying goodbye, Paul saying goodbye. Like this is a sacred thing for us Believer? Because the Christian life is in many ways a series of saying goodbyes, isn't it? We just, we just moved my number three daughter, Berkeley, to San Antonio. We had to say goodbye to her. And so those of you who haven't been through it and you're wondering what's it like, I'll tell you what it's like. It sucks. It's terrible, right? But... It's good that I feel that emotion, right? It's good that that saddens me. That's saying there's something really precious about this. And listen to me, if we're going to be a church that plants churches, that plant churches, then there's going to be more and more and more goodbyes, of people like, I don't want to see you go. I, don't, I want to see your face more than I'm going to get to you. And it saddens us, but this is not our home. There's going to be a day, right, Christian, when we're all together in one place, a giant family reunion, and we never, we never have to say goodbye again. This is precious. Paul weeps over the Ephesians. See, see, this is one reason that we ought to be careful as we say goodbye to people that, man, are we okay? My mom and dad modeled something for us, for me, 
that I have carried through to this day. I, I, they told me I cannot remember an occasion when I was on the phone with them, going to bed at night, they were going to, you know, I was going to be heading off on a date, whatever it was. Every time, I love you. I love you. And so I've carried that over, right? Every phone, I mean, I could talk and, I mean, you know, I saw you five minutes ago. I'm going to see you in five minutes. I love you. Because I don't know. I love you. I love you. I say it to my daughters. I say it to my son. I say it to my, my mom. I say it to Michelle. I mean, we do this. In fact, it's become so habitual, it sometimes got me in trouble. Um, Caroline Bloomer was my assistant at one point. I remember I was leaving a message for Caroline, and I get done, and Caroline did it. Da, love you. Bye-bye. Hung up. I'm like, oh, my gosh. I pick up the phone. Okay, Caroline, I do love you. Not like that, right? But I love you. You're wonderful, right? But listen, this is a good thing. It's a good thing that we say, that we make sure that the air is clear because we don't know when that goodbye is final. And so the, the Bible holds up these things like this is good that we see this as sacred. Say I love you when you say goodbye. Now, the, the next thing I want you to see is, is the surprising nature of Christian guidance. Okay, now I, I, wanna, I want you to see this because I don't know if you picked up on it but it appears that the spirit is contradicting himself, doesn't it? If I go back to chapter 19, verse 21, Paul resolves in the spirit. He's constrained by the spirit. I'm going to Jerusalem. I know what awaits me. I'm going. The spirit is telling me to go. You get to chapter 21, verse 4, and what does it say again? It says, and through the spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, what do I do with that? That's surprising. That's strange. How do I reconcile this idea? Well, let's, let's, let's talk about this, right? When he gets to Agabus, he's got this man who ties himself up. You're going to go. And everybody says, don't go, Paul. And Paul goes. What do I do with this? Let me give you this principle. And I'm going to kind of unpack this in various ways until hopefully it's really clear by the time we finish. Okay, Here, here's, here's what I want you to see the principle. That the, that the Holy Spirit's guidance, that is him speaking, him impressing, him giving a word, whatever it is, is infallible. What he says is perfect. He is God, very God. He's the third person of the Trinity. He does not change his mind. He doesn't, you know, go, oops, I didn't mean to say that to Paul. What I really want to say is in chapter 21, verse 4, don't go, Paul. I said what I mean. So, so infallible, but chooses to speak through, work with, and in fallible human beings, fallen human beings. Now, let me, let me just sort of bring this down to our level. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you have ever sent a text that you meant to be one thing, but it was received another? And now you know why you have emojis, right? So, so that you're like, I really am smiling when this is happening, or I'm angry, or I'm crying, or whatever. So you get the sense of emotion going on there. It's very easy to misinterpret what's been given to you. This happens with people and the Holy Spirit. So, so it's possible for someone to receive, if you will, an infallible impression, infallible sense to, to, to say this is what God would want, but to 
misapply and misinterpret. So, so let, me, let me give you an example from my own experience, and I'm, I'm not trying to freak anybody out here, let me, but, but, but let me frame it this way. I grew up, as some of you in here did, I grew up in a Pentecostal denomination. That means that we, uh, we believe that all the gifts of the Spirit that you read about in, in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 are still in operation today. By the way, I still believe that, but, but hear me. This, is, this was how some things that happened as I was growing up in my church. Um, it, was, it was quite frequent, in fact, that we would be in a church service like this. Usually at, we had night services back then. Remember those days, people? Um, and and uh, there would be some time of worship or whatever. And, and there would very often be what we would call a message in tongues. Okay, now... This comes out of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, that, that, that God gives to some people a gift of tongues, you could say. It's a foreign language or whatever. It's a language, I'll just say it this way, that you and I do not understand. So Paul says, if that happens, if somebody gives a message in tongues, then there must be an interpretation of that tongue. Now, again, I'm not trying to argue with anybody. If you don't believe the gifts are today, just hear me just for a second, okay? So, so um, the, the, the Bible, the, the, 1 Corinthians 14 says this. The one who speaks in a tongue speaks to God. You follow me so far? So that, so that whatever's being said is directed to God. Okay, clear so far? I don't want to lose you here. So now we would wait. Be quiet. And then somebody would speak up that had the gift of interpretation according to 1 Corinthians and they would interpret what was said, okay? More often than not, the message, the interpretation that came was something like, my people, here's what I want you to hear from me. Now, what's wrong with that? The one who speaks in a tongue speaks to God not to man. Paul's very specific actually about that. The one who speaks a prophecy speaks to men. So what was happening? I mean, if genuinely they were hearing from the Spirit, it's possible for them to misinterpret, misapply what was being said. Are these evil people? Are they terrible people? Are they bad people? No. Godly, gracious, saints of God. But, but what we say, well, well their, their experience led them to interpret it that way. Their understanding of Scripture or misunderstanding of Scripture. So, okay, now let's take that. I know that seems, from you, that's just weird, but hear me. Let's go to first, let's go to, to Acts chapter 21 now. What happened in Acts chapter 21? Paul hears from the Spirit. The Spirit is undoubtedly saying to every place Paul goes, to every group of people, Paul is going to suffer in Jerusalem. It's going to happen, right? So this is the message coming from the Holy Spirit. What's the interpretation? What do they say in response? That means, Paul, don't go. And Paul says, no, that is not what that means. In other words... These people just misapplied. They had a poor understanding of Scripture. They had, we could say it this way, bad theology. They were filtering the message of the Spirit through their bad theology. Okay, so, so let, me, let, me, let me sort of 
try to end run and, and do another angle on this. Let's suppose the Spirit of God is speaking to you. Okay, so I'll just use myself as an example. I felt a subjective sense in my spirit when I was called to ministry that this is what God wanted me to do. Now, now listen, there was more than that, but let me, I'll just use this as an example. So what did I do? The very first thing I did was go and vet what I sensed the spirit might be impressing me to do with the people of God. I wanted to know from lots of people, do you think this is right? Should I be doing this? I don't know if this is right for me, right? I think Paul would say, yes and amen. That's a good thing. You should listen to the community of faith around you. Paul doesn't. Paul ignores them. I'm not going to listen to you. You're wrong. What's Paul? Is Paul just a maverick? Like, is Paul a dude that goes, man, I get to the end of my life, sing with Frank Sinatra, I did it my way, right? I may be wrong, but I live life on my own terms. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? No. No, he's, he understands there's a, there's a very narrow window, we might say, in which we reject the advice of the community. And by the way, um, I think we see this with Paul, and I think, think we see it with Christ. I want you to think for me, with me for a moment. Paul resolves in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. Jesus turned his face and set it as flint to go to Jerusalem. Paul knows that trials await him. Jesus knows that trials await him, persecution, suffering, even death. Paul's companions say to him, don't go. Jesus' companions say, don't do this. Paul ignores all of them. Jesus ignores all of them. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's exactly what, what Luke wants you to see. And he wants you to see these commonalities, Okay. What happened with Jesus? Jesus, remember this? He says to his disciples, he says, hey, fellas, uh, who do uh, people say that I am? Well, some say you're a prophet. Some say you're Elijah. Well, who do you 12 say that I am? And Peter, you know, being the guy he is, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed to this to you, but my Father in heaven, Simon, take the front of the class, five stars beside your name. You're amazing. You got it. And then it says, and then Jesus began to say to them, the Son of Man must suffer. He'll be persecuted. He'll be flogged, stoned, crucified, and in three days he'll, he'll rise. And Peter from the front of the class looks at Jesus and says, oh, no, that's not happening. Not on my watch. That's not going down. Stop talking like that. And Jesus says, Peter, get up out of your seat. Go to the back of the class, Satan. You don't get it. Now listen, can't we sympathize with Peter, first of all? He loves Jesus. He, 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 he loves his friend. He's concerned for him. I don't want that happening to you. And Peter, no doubt, is thinking to himself, there's no way you are the Christ, the son of the living God. There is no way, Jesus, that God would let that happen to his one and only son. And Jesus says, you are dead wrong, Peter. Now fast forward to Acts 21. What's happening? The exact same thing. You are dead wrong. You know when you can ignore the crowd? When the crowd is wrong. When the crowd is reading something into scripture that isn't there. When the crowd 
has basically doesn't understand what their Bible says. By the way, this is one of the reasons we ought to know our Bible. This is why the reason we offer classes. This is why we're trying to get you to understand theology in one of the classes we're offering, right? So that we're not we're not put in this predicament, right? So so look. You reject voices, even in the community of faith, when they're wrong biblically. This is what Peter, this is what Jesus is doing. So, so let's, let's just, what are the lessons? What, what, what is, what's being taught to us here through Peter and, and by extension Christ rejecting other people? Well, first of all, you need to know that following Christ means taking up your cross. See, here was the problem of all of Paul's companions. They had bad theology, and that bad theology said Christ, God, does not want his children to suffer. God would never intentionally cause his children to suffer. Paul's like, you're dead wrong. No, God causes us to suffer all the time. Paul's going to say, I know, though, that the sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing to the glory that's revealed in us, to us. See, this is, this is, this is part and parcel of what we do. Suffering happens. Jesus says, in this life, you will have suffering. Right? Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Right? It's okay. He said, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they hated me, they'll hate you. They're going to do worse to you. Like This is the, this is the path of of the Christian life, that there will be suffering. I can say to you on the authority of Scripture, not if you come to Christ, you might suffer, but if you come to Christ, you will suffer. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, Paul says. Not if. You will. You'll be persecuted by family. Some of you are going to go into university classrooms here in the next couple of days. You will have professors telling you're an idiot. I can't believe you believe that garbage. There will be all kinds of things that happen. Do we listen to it? Do we listen to the theology that says, Christian, you shouldn't suffer, you won't suffer? It's dead wrong. Dead wrong. And then second of all, sometimes well-intentioned Christians offer unbiblical advice. Well, now that we know you're going to suffer, Paul, don't go. Here's what I believe the Spirit is saying to me. You shouldn't go. Paul says, you've completely misinterpreted what the Spirit's saying. You've misinterpreted what the Bible is saying. Does Christ ever will his children to suffer? The answer is yes. It was the will of God Isaiah 53, to crush his son, his will. I intended that. I have ordained suffering. Why? I don't know. I don't know in your life or my life. I know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I know God is doing something that I can't see. Here's what I do know from scripture. There are some things that will not happen outside of suffering in your life. And the amazing thing about God is he can sort of judo flip that suffering into being good in your life. That's amazing. What a God. And this is what I know if you're a Christian. You will look back. You may be in the midst of terrible pain, terrible suffering, terrible sorrow, but there will come a day when you will look back and say, thank you, Jesus. There are things I would have never seen of you apart from this. 
Um, look, I, 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 think, I think this whole idea, the kind of theology we see emerging among Paul's companions is very pervasive in our culture, isn't it? It's very pervasive in the church. It's very pervasive, can I say it this way? In parenting. God can't possibly want little Jane and Johnny to suffer. So I, as their parent, will rescue them out of it all. There's no way he wants my son to ride the bench. I'm going to chew out the coach. There's no way my child gets a DRF. So I'm going to call up the teacher and tell him, you better fix this right now. There's no way God would want my child to be lonely because they struggle with same-sex attraction or they haven't found a person yet. So it's okay if they take matters in their own hand. You see what I mean? This is everywhere. This is everywhere. And this passage is telling, no, this is the surprising, the surprising way that God, that the Spirit guides us. He guides us into places we wouldn't expect. And it's still Him. Let me give you one last thing, and I've got to be quick here. I want you to see the powerful nature of Christian conviction. And I'll just say this. Do you notice this? Paul just says, you know what? At the end of the day, you've got it wrong. I'm not only willing to suffer, but to die for the name. Do, do you hear the conviction in that? This is, a, this is a work of God in the life of Paul. Do you know how invincible you would be if you looked upon suffering and even death with contempt. There is nothing, nothing that could derail you. Nothing that could hold you back. There's nothing you wouldn't do for God. I heard somebody say recently that when it comes to missions, we sometimes talk about countries that are closed. They're closed to the gospel. So we'd think about North Korea. Uh, we think about Saudi Arabia, places like that. And this person said, there are no closed countries. You can get into all of them, but you may not get out because you might suffer or die for the name. But if you held that in contempt, do you see what I mean? I don't care. I don't care. God, give us people. Give us church planters. Give us missionaries. Give us people. Give us to my own heart. That says, man, there's, I hold it in contempt if only the name of Christ is exalted. Let's pray. Father, well, we love you. And um, I pray, Lord, that you would steal the spines of many of us in this room. Lord, there are some people I have no doubt in this room who are suffering, going through times of great sorrow, hurting, some who are suffering at the hands of other people. Some who will suffer when they go home today. Some who will suffer this week in university classrooms. God, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, they could hold that suffering with contempt for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be people who would be discerning of the voice of the Spirit. who are willing to even go against the tide when the tide is wrong 
violates what scripture doesn't say. So teach us, God. Help us to grow in our knowledge of you and knowledge of your word. And thank you for Christian fellowship, God. May it become sweeter and sweeter. May growth groups as they start up here in the next couple of days, God, may people find and grow into the sweetness, the preciousness of Christian fellowship. We love you. We thank you. And we ask this in Jesus' name.